Our first reading is found in the book of Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 and 31. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Our second reading this morning comes from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 14. We begin at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Amen. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I thought I might start my sermon this week by showing you just a few of the holiday photos we took on our recent trip to Southeast Asia. Uh, to save you from having to sit through the full gamut of the 4,000 photographs that we actually took, I thought I'd focus in on some photos of gods, or at least objects of devotion. And as I show these photos, I'd like you to consider my thesis for this morning, which is that people construct their gods 
either in their own image or in the image of whatever it is that they think of as powerful. I'm just going to say that again. People construct their gods either in their own image or in the image of whatever it is that they think of as powerful. So let's start with possibly the most imposing object of worship we saw, the giant reclining Buddha of Bangkok. He is truly astonishingly large and very, very gold. So I've included myself in this photo to give you something of a sense of scale. But just to give you a firm idea, he's 15 metres tall and 46 metres long. In other words, he wouldn't fit in this building by some considerable margin. If people construct their gods, either in their own image or in the image of whatever it is that they think of as powerful, then the reclining Buddha ticks both boxes. He's a male human and he is just about as ostentatiously powerful as it is possible to get. At the other end of the size scale, but ramping up the wealth and value stakes even higher, we also saw in Bangkok a small statue that is known as the Emerald Buddha. He's actually made of jade, and his origins are lost in the mists of history, but he is ancient, maybe as much as 2,000 years old, and so valuable that whole wars have been fought over who gets to own him. And the temple where the Emerald Buddha resides is protected by these demon guards. Their role is to protect the sanctity of the temple and ensure that no one misbehaves. They are huge, powerful, and quite terrifying. Even if I did keep assuring myself that they are only statues, it kind of felt like they might come and get me. Further angels and demons support the base of various stupas in the Grand Palace in Bangkok. And whilst they are humanoid in form, they're actually monkeys and members of the divine monkey armies whose role is to fight out the eternal battle between good and evil. Apparently, the ones without shoes are the good ones and the ones with shoes are the evil ones, of course. We also met divine beings in the forms of human fused with animals. Here is Liz going face to face with a kinara, which is a kind of half-human, half-bird creature from Hindu mythology. And whilst kinaras are apparently generally benign and spend their time writing poetry and that kind of stuff and songs, we also met various gods of judgment, including this rather terrifying scene showing a hideous demon with human corpses coming out of his mouth and ears as another many-armed demon looks on hungrily with knives and forks in his hands. But then, in addition to the many, many mythological creatures, there is the widespread practice of venerating saints and ancestors. This interesting three-woman temple in Vietnam provides people with an opportunity to make an offering of beer, there's cans of beer there, water, little bottles of water, and, and intriguing apples, which apparently the revered saintly ancestors then get to drink and eat in the afterlife. They also make offerings of $100 bills, which are burned in the little furnaces just outside the temple, so that the deceased saints will have money to spend in the afterlife. Apparently these are fake notes, but once they've passed over into the hereafter, they're great for spending. 
The power here is clearly the power of money and a desire that those in the afterlife are well provided for. And then in Cambodia, we encountered monumental statues of gods. These guys are angels who are involved in a divine tug of war with demons, using the body of Naga the snake to churn the ocean of milk and bring the universe into being. And the haunting giant spectral faces of Angkor Tom tower over the jungle, reminding anyone who sees them that the gods of that place are huge, powerful, and ethereal. So, to return to my thesis and end my holiday snaps, we make our gods either in our own image or in the image of what we perceive to be powerful. And my question for us this morning is this. What does your God look like? What does God look like to you? So, hold this thought. Or rather, sit with it for a few minutes, and we'll come back to it. This sermon is the introduction to our series on what it means to be a truly inclusive church, which we will be coming back to on the first Sunday of each month as we go through this year, looking at how we as a congregation can be more inclusive of those who are often excluded and marginalised, both in society and in Christian communities. Many of you will know that we are in the process of registering with the organisation known as Inclusive Church. The deacons considered this at an away day towards the end of last year, and I know that at least one of the home groups has been working through the material from Inclusive Church uh, that they provide for churches to reflect on their own journeys of inclusion. I would be grateful if you talked to me about how that's going for you. I'd love to hear stories about that. Our website clearly states that we are, quote, aspiring to be an inclusive and accessible church in the centre of London that holds and represents a wide variety of people, opinions and backgrounds. And our order of service, which you have in front of you, proclaims on the front page, we are an inclusive church in the heart of London. Whether we're there yet or not is a moot point, but I, I will certainly go with that we're aspiring to do this. Clearly, the desire to include people who face exclusion elsewhere is a core part of our understanding of ourselves. It's something that we say clearly and we say often as a congregation. We have a long history of acting in solidarity with the vulnerable and sometimes taking controversial stands alongside the marginalised. Our registration for same-sex marriage is one recent practical outworking of this core value of inclusion, but it certainly isn't the only example. And the story of this church's refusal to welcome slave-owning Baptists at the Lord's Table in the Great Exhibition year of 1851 is another important moment in our history, which I think set a trajectory that has stayed with us. However, inclusion is about more than sexuality or ethnicity, although it clearly includes these. And Inclusive Church, as an organisation, invites us to consider other areas of inclusion alongside these, to look also at issues such as poverty, gender, transgender, disability and mental health as mechanisms of exclusion within society and church life. 
And over the next few months, we're going to be considering ways in which we as a congregation can take practical steps to be more inclusive in a wide variety of areas. To help us with this, we're going to be hearing wherever possible from people who represent the marginalised communities that we're wanting to see included in our church life. So it's not all going to be me speaking. One of the golden rules of inclusion discourse is the mantra, nothing about us without us, meaning no decisions, however well-meaning, should be taken without the involvement of those who are going to be affected by them. And so it is important for us to ensure that our exploration of inclusion is not simply a top-down discussion by those of us who are already included about the terms on which we will welcome people who are not quite like us. And here I'd like to offer a word of warning, which is that this process of taking inclusion seriously can be a difficult journey for those of us who are already included. Earlier this year, as part of my sabbatical, I spent some considerable time with a workbook called Me and White Supremacy, as recommended by Dawn and others. If you're interested, I recommend downloading it. It's free and it's very good. Now, we're not going to be looking in details at issues of ethnic inclusion this week. We'll come to that in a couple of months' time. But I thought I'd just share the opening phrase from the website as an example of how engaging inclusion as someone with power can be an uncomfortable exercise. White supremacy is a violent system of oppression that harms black, indigenous, and people of color. And if you are a white person who holds white privilege, then you are complicit in upholding that harm, whether you realize it or not. The realization that as a white person, whether I like it or not, I am complicit in a violent system of oppression is a very uncomfortable thing to hear. But, and here's the transferable lesson that we need to take across all our considerations of inclusion, where those of us with power are complicit in oppression, we are diminished. As long as I am included at the expense of someone else's exclusion, whether that's on the basis of my ethnicity, my gender, my sexuality, my mental health, my wealth, or my ability, and as long as I accept that privilege without taking action to address the situation, I'm not only participating in violence against others, I am also diminishing my own self before the God who makes all people in God's own image. And here we come back to God. And the question I asked a few minutes ago, what does your God look like? Have you started to think through what your answer to that might be? I suspect that for many of us, God either looks a bit like us or a bit like what we think power looks like. So for me, my theologically correct answer, of course, is that God looks like Jesus. After all, in our Bible reading for this morning, Jesus says that if we have seen him, we've seen the Father. So, by this understanding, God is male, able-bodied, he's articulate, he's a teacher, he's a preacher, he's someone who leads others and challenges preconceptions. Can you see what's happening? I'm constructing God in my own image. I'm emphasizing those attributes of Jesus that match the things about me that represent power. And of course, this is entirely the wrong way around. 
After all, we are made in God's image, not he in ours. When we make God in our image, we commit the sin of idolatry. Because we either end up worshipping ourselves or the things that we most value and admire. So what does your God look like? What does God look like to you? Does God look a bit like you sometimes? Or does God look like what you have been conditioned to think of as power? If you're a woman, you may still see God as male. And a feminist critique would suggest that this is a function of the patriarchy, normalising maleness as power and then inviting us to deify and worship it. If you're a person of colour, you may still see God as white, and a racial justice critique would suggest that this is a function of white supremacy, normalising whiteness as power and inviting us to deify and worship it. If you're a person with a disability or an impairment, you may still see God as able-bodied and mentally healthy, and a disability rights critique would suggest that this is a function of ableism, normalising ability as power and inviting us to deify and worship it. If you're a person living with economic disadvantage, you may still see God as wealthy, with his glittering golden churches built by people with guilt complexes. And a Marxist analysis would suggest that this is a function of religion as a mechanism of oppression, normalising wealth as power and inviting us to prostrate ourselves before it. But here's the thing. There is a way out of our idolatry. The crucified God invites us to nail all of our false images of God to the cross and to see them and the privilege and power that sustains them die and that in their place is born a new humanity of equality and justice. This is the good news of the cross for all people. And appropriately, as we approach Good Friday, this can be for us a Lenten challenge, something to consider as we turn our faces to the cross. Can we give up our deified images of power? Can we learn to worship God as God is, rather than as we have constructed God? And yes, this will be painful for some of us, because it invites us to encounter God in places we would not expect to find God. It requires us to set aside our preconceptions, our investment in what is, and to encounter God not in deified power, but in weakness, in prejudice even, in the other. It means we have to ask difficult questions of what it might mean if God doesn't look like me at all. What if God doesn't look like power? What if God looks like a refugee? Or a person with no home and no money? Or a person with a disability? What if God is a person of colour? What if God is not male? or straight, or in good mental health. And of course in Jesus, God is indeed all of these things. Jesus was not a white European, he was a dark-skinned Jew. 
He bears in his body the marks of the crucifixion, his hands and feet maimed for all eternity. He was the homeless, penniless refugee whose childhood was spent on the run and whose adult life was spent as the one who had nowhere to lay his head. He was unmarried and childless, defying the gender and sexual norms of his day, and he was known for associating with those whose own sexual history was at best ambiguous. He experienced periods of great psychological trauma, from the overwhelming pressure of people to tears of grief at the death of a friend to the devastating loneliness of Gethsemane. His sweat in his mental anguish was like drops of blood in Gethsemane as his torment took its toll on his physical well-being. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. And Jesus tells his disciples that if they have seen him, they have seen God. So what would it be like for us this Lent and at the start of our journey this year into greater inclusion? to give up on our idolatrous images of God, made either in our own images or cast to deify strength and power as we experience it in our lives, society and world? What would it mean for us collectively as the body of Christ to embody a more broken, excluded and reviled image of God? To put it another way, what would it mean for us to take seriously what our building tells us each time we meet for worship, which is that we gather around the cross of Christ as the people of Christ, broken and humbled? You see, the starting point for a journey into greater inclusion isn't a greater understanding of the marginalised and the oppressed. That comes... But the starting point is a greater understanding of ourselves and our own capacity for sinful idolatry. It is not for those of us who have power and are already included to tell others that our God is their God too. God is already the God of the person of colour and the person with the physical or mental impairment. God is already the God of the woman as well as the man, as well as the person of non-binary gender. God is already the God of the LGBTQI community, just as God is already the God of the homeless and the God of the economically disadvantaged and my God and your God. The problem here is not God as revealed in Christ, the problem is with me, and maybe with you too. As we uncritically and unthinkingly deify our version of normality, creating God in our images of power. The journey to inclusion starts when we realize that the image of the black Christ, the female Christ, the gay or trans Christ, the homeless or disabled Christ, are not idolatrous perversions, but actually are authentic representations of the diversity of the body of Christ. And so some images to close, which may help us with this as we start the journey that lies before us. This is Krista. It's a bronze statue by the world-renowned sculptor and artist Edwina Sandis, who, if you didn't know, is the granddaughter of Winston Churchill. She first displayed the sculpture here in London in 1975, and it was very controversial at the time. Since then, it has been displayed around the world, and it now has a permanent home in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York. 
Edwina Sandis says of her sculpture, I didn't make Krista as a campaign for women's rights or women's live as such, but I have always believed in equality. And I am glad that Krista is just as relevant today as it was in 1975. I didn't make Krista just for women. Men also suffer, and that is one of the meanings of Jesus on the cross. Over the years, I have received many letters from men, many of them priests of all denominations. In the past, there were matriarchs in many societies and religions, and gender was not always a factor. Today, women are finding their way to take their place in the Christian church and in society in general. Most women of my generation, she was born in 1938, have been stamped with the idea of man's superiority over woman, which is hard to throw off without seeming aggressive. I hope that Krista continues to reveal the journey of suffering that we all have in common. The next image I have for us is one which I find deeply moving, having just been to Cambodia and seen firsthand the evidence of the horrors of the Khmer Rouge regime. Liz and I walked through one of the killing field sites and we saw the clothes and bones of the tens of thousands buried there, rising up from the ground we were treading on as it erodes away. We saw the tree where children were dashed to death. We saw the torture centre at the former high school where anyone who was suspected was forced to confess. We saw adults with limbs missing from having trodden on landmines, trying to earn a living by playing musical instruments and begging for money. And I wonder what it means for us to see Christ as a Cambodian amputee with a Southeast Asian face nailed to a bamboo pole. And here is another beautiful image. A reworking of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper portrayed by models with Down syndrome. What does it mean for us to see Jesus as someone with a genetic disability rather than as a perfected specimen of humanity? What does it mean for Jesus to embody weakness and vulnerability? What does this say to us as the body of Christ in this place that in our embodiment of Christ we are called to be the living expression of the God who made each person in God's own image. And another image, this time the image of the homeless Jesus. If you look closely, you can see that the person asleep on the bench bears the marks of crucifixion on his body. This is Jesus as someone who sleeps rough. And it's a very long way from the Jesus who lives in the beautiful churches of our cities. It was originally going to be displayed in Trafalgar Square and then outside Westminster Central Hall. Both of these were turned down. Westminster City Council commented in 2016 that the proposed sculpture would fail to maintain or improve the character or appearance of the Parliament Square conservation area. So now you can visit the homeless Jesus in Farm Street Jesuit Centre in Mayfair if you want to. And here we have an installation from Pride, Sao Paulo, 2015, by a transgender artist of Jesus as someone who embodies the agony experienced by those whose experience of their own gender doesn't match their physical being. The text above the crown of thorn reads, End Homophobia, in Portuguese. And finally, we have a white European Jesus as depicted by the pre-Raphaelite artist Holman Hunt. It's one of the most famous images of Jesus. It inspired great devotion through the Victorian era. It's beautiful, I love it, but we need to recognize that Jesus here is an embodiment of power and privilege, 
And if this is our only Jesus, we run the risk of excluding those who are made differently, but in the image of God. So return to my question, what does your God look like? Does God look like you, or like what you think power looks like? Or can we learn to see God in all those that have been made in the image of God? Can we learn to see each of us, whoever we are, in our images of God? In Christ, God includes all absolutely. And as the people of Christ, we are called to be the body of Christ in all its diversity. So let us pray. Great God of all love, all compassion, all hope, and all joy. We come before you today mindful of the needs of others and longing that your gospel of justice and peace would be good news for all peoples in all places. And yet we know that there is so much still to do. We know that darkness lurks in so many places. We know that human hearts remain turned from you and that there are many who suffer because people of faith remain inactive or silent. We are particularly grieved when we think that there are those who long to know your redeeming and transforming presence in their lives, but who are kept from you by the people who bear your name. And as we consider the ways in which we welcome people into this community of your people here in London, we ask for your forgiveness for those times when our actions or inactions have caused people to be turned away from finding you in and through us. Give us a desire to live differently, to welcome all in your name, and a hope that transcends despair. Sometimes when we consider the needs of a hurting and damaged world, it can feel as though we're weighed down with the responsibilities we've taken upon ourselves. The task before us feels too great and the efforts we make too insignificant. So Lord, we ask that you will restore unto us the joy of our salvation. May we rediscover in you the lightness of living that drew us to you in the first place and which continues to draw others into your love, forgiveness, and renewal. May your people in this place be beacons of light and hope, discovering joy in the midst of despair, comfort in the face of grief, and faith that transcends all discouragements. It is in this spirit of hope that we come now to pray for the needs of our world, Confident that you are at work in the world in and through your people, bringing new life and resurrection hope. And so we pray for those who live in other countries, for those impacted by the effects of climate change and for those affected by war. We think of those who have lost their homes to floods, those who have been displaced by armies and ideologies, and those who do not have enough to eat. We pray for the aid agencies and the peacekeeping forces that seek to bring help and alleviate suffering. 
We thank you for Christian Aid and the work they do on our behalf. And we think particularly of the current appeal to help those affected by Cyclone Idai in Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe, bringing relief to the three million people who so desperately need food and shelter. May our love for you drive us to a concern for others that takes action in prayerful generosity. As we think of the political crisis facing our own country, we recognise the need for finding a way forwards that safeguards the most vulnerable in our society. We pray for our political leaders and we ask that they will not lose sight of the impact their decisions will have on those with low incomes for whom any economic downturn or reduction in benefits can be catastrophic. We thank you for the work done by the Christian churches in this country to speak truth to power and for the way our national leaders hold before our decision makers the needs of those who may not have a voice to speak for themselves. So we thank you for the Baptist Union and the work of the Faith and Society team and the Joint Public Issues team as they advocate on issues of justice. We pray particularly for Stephen Keyworth, the team leader of the Faith and Society team. We ask that you will be with him in his illness, bringing healing and wholeness and comfort to his family. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Help us as individuals and as a church to know what it is to live into being the good news of your inbreaking kingdom. May we learn to love one another more. And may we learn to love you more. And from our sharing in love, may we be motivated to take action together as faith becomes deeds, to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All this we pray in the name of our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen.